Hello and welcome to the fourth episode of the Football Media Podcast on the team of John O'Shea's platform. I'm John McKenzie and across the course of the new season, I'm going to be bringing you a weekly podcast that seeks to open up the often murky underworld of the football media. Each episode will bring you an interview with an expert in as many diverse areas within the industry as possible. We've got writers, authors, artists, journalists, broadcasters, event coordinators, lawyers, commentators. If you can name it, we've got it. This week, I'm speaking to Stefan Bienkowski, a freelance football journalist and co-founder of The 2.1, a Scottish football website. In the course of our conversation, we discuss the Scottish football media, the subscription model as a means of monetizing a website, and the future of the football media as a whole. If you enjoy this podcast, please share it with your friends, subscribe, rate and review on iTunes in order to help us gain exposure, and if you're a social media person, you can follow us on Twitter at FootyMediaPod. Next week, we will be talking to Ahmed Yusuf about black bodies in football and the football media. But before that, it's Stefan Bienkowski, the Scottish football media and subscription models. Enjoy. I'm joined today by Stefan Bienkowski, freelance football journalist and co-founder of The 2.1. Stefan, how are you doing? I'm doing very well, John. How are you? Yeah, I'm great. On all of these podcasts, I start off by allowing the guests to introduce themselves, but also to give us a flavour about how they ended up in the sports media and what they spend their day-to-day life doing. So how did you end up in this gig? Um, I think like a lot of sports journalists, uh, I was once a plucky wee lad who wanted to write football reports for a living uh, or match reports for a living. Way back when, I mean, I've always had a huge fascination with football and even though I actually ended up going to uni and doing engineering, uh, civil and then electrical engineering, I I couldn't really tear myself away from it. And I, I found myself blogging when I was at university and one thing led to another and all of a sudden I was kind of, instead of studying for engineering exams, I was blogging for the New York Times. And, um, you know, I was, I was staying in over summers doing resets for these engineering exams, which I didn't really particularly care about. And then, you know, I just kind of had that moment of realisation that one of these things makes me happy, one of these things doesn't. So I packed in the engineering and decided to go freelancing. And that was maybe the best part of maybe 10, 8 years ago. And I've been doing that ever since. I managed to get myself a master's in multimedia journalism uh, in Glasgow and I've kind of just worked around um, on a largely freelance basis um, from largely working for newspapers based on uh, German football. Um, it was a kind of niche I decided to specialise in quite early on, largely because I took a look at the kind of landscape and everyone's fascinated with Spanish football and English football. And I thought, well, you know, no one's covering German football. So if I can do that half decently, then I might be able to get in here. And it's done me quite well. You know, I've worked for a number of decent newspapers. I worked for the 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 largest commercial broadcaster in Scotland, STV, on their sports department, largely through the freelance work I'd done beforehand. And then uh, I moved out to Germany where I was working as a football correspondent for the Washington, the Washington Post and uh, I was working as well for Deutsche Welle. And it's been a fantastic journey and I've thoroughly enjoyed it, but I decided to move back to Scotland uh, and set up the 2.1 with a couple of like-minded colleagues because, you know, I, I thought, well, what's coming down the line here? And maybe without jumping straight into it, I thought, well, why don't we try something a little different in the media landscape and just drop it in there and see what happens? And so how much of your day-to-day life is spent working on the 2.1? I say at the moment, so I still do quite a lot of freelance work. So I say it's probably half and half. I maybe 
oh gosh, how many, maybe write four or five articles a week for the website. And we do videos and we do, we have a podcast. And that's above and beyond the kind of boring admin stuff that comes with running a small business. Um, constant conversations with sponsors and writers and lots of little niggly things like a subscriber can't get onto his profile page so I spend four hours talking to a web developer or <laughs> just little things like that but I'd say I'd probably say I, I spend the vast majority of each day actually it's it's I get up at about 7 seven thirty every morning um, and I'm usually working through it to about five or six at night and that's kind of a chopped up schedule of um, largely working for the 2.1 but squeezing in freelance work whenever and uh, whenever it pops up. Before we jump into talking about the, the 2.1 in particular, I'd like to start off talking a little bit about the Scottish media scene, simply because I haven't really talked to anyone about it yet. I've said you've, you obviously find yourself straddling the Scottish English media in our running order. That's clearly not true. You've obviously straddled the Scottish, German and American media probably more. But what, what would you say that the biggest difference is that exists between the Scottish media and these other spheres? And do you think the increased interest in, for example, you've mentioned English and Spanish football, do you think the increased interest in those, in those areas actually increases the quality of journalism done in it? Yeah, it's a really fascinating question. Um, I, I think the Scottish media actually takes quite a lot from um, the English uh, model. I think there's huge aspects of society that just that's just the case in many things. You know, our, our newspapers are very similar to um, what you would find in London or across England. And we have a number of Scottish versions of English newspapers, for example. I think the Scottish version of the Times is probably the best-selling broadsheet in Scotland right now. And I'd probably go as far as to say that they have the best sports team as well, actually, covering the Scottish games. So it's 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 very, very similar to what you get in England. But I think maybe where, where it maybe diverges is that while the Premier League has globalised the manner in which football is covered in, the, in, in at least in England and the, the, I think the English media has kind of followed suit and by that I mean um, you know you've now got at the times you've got data visualisation you've now got data analysts who are covering football games the way that you would see um, American media cover American sports that's beginning to seep into the English media um, and you know there's a huge amount of and, and that's just the very top level. Once you actually go down a tier or two to maybe, um, you know, maybe the kind of semi-professional stuff or the things that, um, you know, the, the titles that don't maybe have offices on Fleet Street, um, you, you see a huge amount of variation and innovation, I think. Um, and I think that's something that Scottish football maybe or Scottish media slowly but surely coming around to. It was only maybe two or three years ago that I remember having conversations or arguments with people at STV about putting videos on Facebook. Um, you know, this that sounds baffling to anyone in the media now, but, you know, these things change so very quickly. Um, and, yeah, so I think I think there's a lot of goodwill in, Scot- in, in, in the Scottish media, but I think it's, 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 it's probably much slower to come to terms of innovation and things. And, um, you know, there's still newspapers in um, Scotland. In fact, I'm trying to think... If you were to maybe, for example, go through, if, 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 if someone who's listening to this perhaps took an interest in Scottish football and wanted to listen to a podcast, we don't, ha- we don't have established podcasts from established titles such as the Guardian Football Weekly or the Times um, or the Independence that went up, for example, this season. Our major titles, so, so yeah, what I'm trying to say is in terms of a newspaper, there's still very much newspapers, but 
when it comes to things like video or podcasting or anything beyond that. Um, a lot of the titles have been slow to maybe pivot towards those things. I was just thinking, I saw yesterday on Graham's feed that, is it the new Scottish Herald? Is that is that the newspaper that's just closed down? or the, Is that right? So in, in Glasgow, you have the Herald uh, and you have the Sunday Herald, which were sister papers. And the Sunday Herald decided to... to um, oh, I'm not sure if I'd use the word closed down. It decided to become part of the Herald and then... Uh, right. So the daily paper will be well. This, the daily paper, which ran from Monday to Saturday, Saturday, will now do the Sunday edition as well. So it's, it's not quite so drastic as I made it sound. Uh, you, you know what? It's it's it's. I've actually found the kind of the way that the, they've actually covered it has been a little baffling to me because there's no, um, as far as I can tell, there's no, um, you know, staff cuts or anything like that. Or it's it's really just a kind of reorganisation. I know I know when newspapers do say that, that's usually spin for staff cuts and you know budget slashes and things. But it strikes me as though they are genuinely. Um, it's it's more of a political move actually, if I'm being honest with you. Um, largely down to the fact that. Um, the the Sunday Herald supported independence in the Scottish referendum, and since then they've tra- they've moved more back towards a central a centralist position. I think they found the readers that they they once had galvanised around them because of their decision to support independence have moved away. <laughs> this is where it gets a little complicated, actually. <laughs> so the Herald own a third paper called the National, which is very much a pro independence newspaper. And I think what they found was that the Sunday Herald was kind of bobbling between the Herald and the National. And they decided, like, look, let's, let's just cut the middleman here, leave the National for people who support independence and, and maybe want that side of the debate. And let's just engulf the, the Sunday Herald within the Herald. And, and then we just have a normal central paper. I mentioned the quality at the end of that of that question. To, to what extent do you think you, you've, you mentioned that, that Scottish journalism obviously is a little bit behind the curve, presumably because it, it can be, because it's, as, as you've said, there's not quite so much competition. How do you think the quality of the of Scottish Scottish journalism compares to to English journalism? Well, I can only really I can only really speak in terms of the, the sports coverage. I mean, I, I do like to read all sorts of news, all, all sections of the newspapers, but that's where my kind of expertise lies. In. Um, in that regard, I think there are certain things lacking. Um, I mean, we wouldn't have set up the two point one if we didn't think so. And you know that kind of fits in with the innovation kind of thing I just mentioned. It's it's not really um, through a lack of interest or a lack of maybe desire, but where you would get more genuine analysis from the likes of, um, you know, the Times or some really good long feature stuff, for example, in things like, um, you know, The Guardian, for example, or The Independent, these are, you know, a number of different websites. That is less common in Scottish football and, and there's still, it's, it's still a, it's still a landscape dominated by two huge tabloid newspapers in the Scottish Sun and the Daily Record, which do, by and large, with obviously some exceptions, um, seem to be focused on. I don't like the term clickbait, but it's 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 transfer rumours, it's it's articles that are disingenuous, just to try and get people on a website, and it's still following that. Um, excuse me, it's still following that uh, business model where you know it's, it's it doesn't really matter what's on the website, it's just as long as you get as many eyes on it, then that works, and and you know that's a prerogative if that's what keeps the doors open. Fair fair enough to them, but. What we've seen is that while they've kind of continued doing following that trend, there has been a there has been some a lack of alternative to that. And what you actually find on the ground level 
in Scottish football is that there's been a huge, 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 God, what's the word, what's the word I'm looking for? Explosion in fan-run media. Twitter is utterly rammed full of Celtic blogs. There, <laughs> there are maybe two or three humongous Rangers blogs which get more traffic per day than some national titles um, in Glasgow. And every pocket of the country has a thoroughly determined and passionate blog. And I'm, I'm not talking about you know, some guy sitting in his bedroom who maybe writes one blog a week and people enjoy reading it and sometimes it's not written perhaps that well or the grammar's poor. I'm talking about guys who spend their days and nights passionately following their clubs. And although there are some quite concerning examples of that where it can kind of verge into the kind of conspiracy theorists, um, and that's a whole different debate for Scottish football, what it, what, but what, what you do find is that huge amounts of Scottish football fans are quite content by reading these titles. And these titles have borne out of a lack of coverage from the professional press. You know, we've, we've actually, I've actually spent this summer kind of going around the country speaking to quite a lot of these, I guess what you'd maybe call fanzines or fanzines, but online. And I've kind of put a question to a lot of them, you know, because, you know, they ask us what we're doing. And I think what the 2.1 and, and a lot of these fan websites have in common is that if the professional press were doing their job, we wouldn't need to be here. And I think that's kind of the chord. That's where the striking moment is where, you know, most of them have turned around and said, well, that's exactly true. And that's not really, I'm not trying to maybe put an us versus them thing up there. It's just, I think it's just an interesting thing to note when you look at the overall market that not only um, would I say the readership between the readership in these newspapers and things is falling, but it's not falling like most Western countries where people are simply not reading newspapers anymore. A large chunk of it is football fans who've decided to turn to these blogs and podcasts and even now YouTube shows because where the newspapers aren't doing what you might find in England or Spain or Germany, these blogs are. Yeah, that's really interesting. To, to what extent, if I could maybe take that thought in, into a slightly different direction, to what extent would you say that you mentioned there that you know if, if the mainstream were doing their job properly, then then there wouldn't be a need for this this sort of new media coming through. But to what extent do you think that the old media is maybe moving so slowly that the new media will overtake it and will, in in some respects, almost become the mainstream? Do you think that will ever happen in Scotland? It's a really interesting thought. I mean, I think what you probably tend to find the, the general consensus when you when you do speak to some people is, and you know, this whether this is accurate, accurate or not is or not is a different debate, but there is a general consensus that the newspapers in Scotland, to a large extent, are, you know, their days are numbered to an extent where, you know, and I, I guess you could make that argument if you're talking to any journalist in England or America or anywhere else, you know, this seems to be the doom and gloom of it all. But, like I said, because that innovation isn't really there, it does seem as though if the Daily Record stops selling newspapers, people aren't going to then start supporting it online, uh, or the Scottish Sun, for example, um, and then on top of that, you then have the broadsheet uh, titles such as the Scotsman and the Herald, which are now struggling to gain maybe thirty, forty thousand readers a day um, from the newspapers. So, rather than perhaps these blogs or uh, the, the non-mainstream media, um, which has popped up, rather than them maybe um, growing to an extent um, that they do overtake these through revenue, or for example. I'm, I'm, I do wonder if it's just a case that they'll just continue growing in and growing in size or growing in scope in spite of what's happening with the mainstream media. It seems to me it's almost two separate things to an extent. But there are there are some examples of 
perhaps more professional alternatives to mainstream media, which I'd like to consider the 2.1 as. You know, there are some there are some wonderful examples besides ourselves. There's the Terrace podcast, which for, has been running for quite some time, which, intriguingly enough, was started by a couple of lads. Well, quite a lot of them. There's almost a dozen of them, actually, who regularly take part in it. But I think the main chunk of them have actually grown into full-fledged sports journalists and entered the kind of professional realm. And the, we've seen the Terrace kind of go from a amateur, jokey, part-time podcast into something that has genuine ambitions Scottish football has its own version of the blizzard I think it's the best way to describe it and, and it's called the nutmeg magazine it's a periodical magazine you know and these things have popped up and they have gained quite a lot of support um, and you know I think the 2.1 is a good example of that too I like to think so anyway um, where people have turned away from the mainstream media to a large extent because they want something a bit more thorough uh, in their football coverage and you know, if you want to kind of st- take a step out of Scottish football, there's a wonderful website called The Ferret, um, which continues to get funding after funding from all sorts of wonderful organisations because of the outstanding journalism it does. And, you know, that's that's another example of where perhaps where the mainstream media um, has been bogged down by maybe its size, maybe its history, maybe its um, tradition. These kind of smaller, nimble, new media companies have managed to pop up, fill in the cracks, and really, str- and really thrive. I've actually got the nutmeg written down on the sheet as, as I was talking to you before, because I, I did just want to last last thing in this in the area of Scottish football media. But the nutmeg obviously is doing long form pieces. To what extent do you think that that long form is coming back into fashion? Is becoming a bit more a la mode, or do you think it just never really fell out at all? It was just there was easier ways of, of doing that sort of thing. Yeah, I, I you know, I, whenever I get into these kind of debates over what football fans want, I tend to find it kind of basically falls into a sort of chicken and the egg argument you know I, I I, like almost everything I tend to talk about these days I had this argument on Twitter a few days ago that's how I tend to start almost every argument these our conversation these days regarding you know these really in-depth topics and features around Scottish football and you know you might have more traditional journalists who would say well you know if if the, if the more simple match reports or transfer stories didn't encapsulate people's interest, then you know we wouldn't do them. And I think there's maybe an argument to be made there, but I think it's also a kind of cultural thing where you know culture doesn't tend to just kind of um, pop it and nothing. It has to come from someone starting something, and then that becomes a lightning rod, and then you know a, a movement is built off the back of that. And I think Nutmeg's probably a good example of that in the sense that, and perhaps as well, and I, Ali who Ali. Uh, Palmer, who runs in Nutmeg, is a wonderful guy. He, he'd be quite happy to say this. I think he does quite often, actually, that a huge inspiration for Nutmeg was the blizzard and the way in which the blizzard came about with long form in England and where it perhaps, rather than kind of jumping on you know, the wave of a crest of long form writing, it decided we're going to put this out there and see if we can start it. I think that's largely what Nutmeg has done as well. I think it's filled a niche because... Um, not only has it filled the niche rather um, in terms of finding the people that have always wanted it but I think it also maybe brings people in who maybe didn't think they needed it and that's kind of the main thing that that's maybe my main gripe with Scottish uh, the Scottish coverage of football um, or the foot or the coverage of Scottish football rather in the sense that you have the mainstream media who have, have been kind of doing the same thing for the last 10 or 15 years and are very skeptical of moving away from that I would argue that you, you you don't know what football fans want until you actually put it down in front of them. And 
my experiences with the 2.1 and I think Ali's experiences with Nutmeg is that you get a lot of people who didn't know they liked that until they actually had a go of it. And I think what we might have now as well in 2018 is that maybe 10 years ago, um, or maybe even longer than that, you had the, these newspapers had a monopoly over the kind of um, the, the, the manner in which people viewed the world. You know, football fans in Scotland, and I think this probably relates to England as well, 10, 15 years ago didn't really know how, didn't know different ways from, you know, covering a football match aside from what they read in the newspaper or even read on the web early in the early days of the web. And because the web's just opened the world up, um, you know, a Scottish football fan can read, um, you know, Brian Phillips in the New Yorker now, for example. You know, they can read a 2,000 word essay or 4,000 word essay on the way Lino Messi takes a touch in a World Cup quarterfinal or something or you know they can they can watch tactics blogs on YouTube for hours and hours on end, or they can watch live shows on Snapchat from Copa Ninety down in London. They're no longer limited to what the Daily Record puts on its back pages every day, and I think what that means is that it's an ed- these these I don't say education, but I think that sounds quite sounds quite mean, perhaps or quite um, condescending. What I mean is that you have football fans in Scotland who are no longer limited to what they get offered from the Scottish media and as such people have begun to realise right well but let's take what we saw from England or London or New York or something and see if um, and see if people actually want this and I think that's exactly what Nutmeg have done and I think that's something we're trying to do at 2.1 as well. Yeah and no, I'm a firm believer in that chicken and egg re- relationship between the media and its audience. I, I'm fully on board with that this idea that yeah, you take your audience seriously, but you also have a responsibility to mould your audience into wanting to consume the things that you want to produce as well. So I think that's really fascinating. And I think that's a really good point on which to start talking about the, the 2.1 itself. I wonder if you could just give us a little bit of background about about the whole project, about the idea, where it came from, how you moved that idea from idea to reality, and why you decided to implement a subscription model, how that works, and how you decided to structure it. So there's a lot in there, but if you could move through those points, it would be it'd be really interesting for us. Sure. Um, so, like I said at the top of the show, um, the 2.1 was kind of born out of this necessity we felt for a different type of coverage of Scottish football. Yes, pockets of you know fan blogs here and there did what we now do, um, but we've thought, well, you know, th- there's maybe an obligation to kind of bring us into the professional realm so that you know it's we're not relying on people to do out of the goodness of their hearts really for for the best intentions and probably the main influence for us was actually the athletic um in america i'm sure most of your listeners probably know what the athletic is if they listen to this podcast but it's largely um a media company a sports media company that focuses largely on hyper localized content I say hyper-localised in the US, that means an entire city the size of Chicago, which, you know, has a probably larger population in Scotland, so it's perhaps an odd, <laughs> it's, a, it's a weird translation, but we, we, we looked at the way that, you know, the Athletic was born out of this necessity to cover the kind of flyover states and cities that likes of ESPN maybe kind of tended to scroll past, and the way in which football fans were quite happy to pay for a service which really treated their club with respect and an attention to detail. And we thought that model is exactly what Scottish football needs. Um, We actually started off, when we started off the website, it was called Scope, and we thought we'll launch it in Glasgow by initially covering Celtic and Rangers. And then the idea was to branch out to Edinburgh eventually, then Aberdeen, and then 
slowly but surely we'd fill in once the you know the, the editorial budget grew we were able to fill in and cover more and more clubs to a point where you'd have um, any given football fan in Scotland could then log on to the website they could go into their own section and within their own club they would have you know a correspondent who would be covering Dundee United or Aberdeen and you know we thought that was a degree of coverage that um, the national media hadn't really offered with some exceptions of course there are some outstanding local journalists, in, for example, in Dundee, Edinburgh and, and, and Aberdeen. But like I've said at the top of the show, these are still very much limited to print or very, very basic web pages. So we, we, we thought we'd launch with that. And um, unfortunately, when we launched from Glasgow with the Celtic and Rangers angle, it was a PR nightmare, to be quite honest with you. Um, we had a huge amount, like I said, there's a huge amount of Celtic and Rangers coverage from fan blogs online already and they took quite some exception to the idea that we were coming along to do things properly for them and essentially we kind of took a decision look and on top of that watch what we actually found was that Celtic and Rangers fans said look we don't need you but we had fans all over the country saying look well why aren't you doing this for our club so we thought we took a step back and we thought look this we start this and instead of covering just Celtic and Rangers why don't we actually branch out and just just launch everything from the start. So we we, we decided to rebrand as the 2.1. Um, the name comes from 2.1%, which is the total population of Scotland, uh, or, or the percentage of Scotland's population that go to football games every weekend. And I'm not sure if any of your English followers, uh, English listeners will know this, but it's actually a point of pride in Scotland because we have one of the highest attendance rates per capita in, in all of Europe, actually. For such a small plucky country, we're absolutely daft about football. So, um, yeah, so we rebranded and we decided, look, we're going to cover the Scottish Premiership as a whole. We'll take it from there. And despite a few people, you know, humming and hawing on Twitter about us going back and forth, it's worked out quite well. And just to kind of jump on to the subscription idea, one of the main focuses for this when we decided we wanted to do this, we had a good think about media strategy and, you know, revenue strategy and revenue re- um how how do you make money from this at the end of the day? And we thought, well, we could go down the we could go down the avenue of, you know, chasing clicks and chasing, you know, ad revenue. But what we tended to find was that, well, if we do that we wouldn't be really any better than what's already on the market. There's already, like I've said, you know, the, the newspaper websites that that they're essentially set up just to harvest clicks. Um there's even a professional um, website outside of the mainstream media called Talking Boz, which is kind of similar, um, where, you know, if if you're looking for just kind of funny things to watch or read without really a huge amount of deep substance, then, you know, you can go there and it's quite fun. So we thought, right, well, that kind of corner of the market's already covered. If you're just a very casual football fan, you know, you can go there. So, you know, if we're deciding we want to kind of chase the 10% or maybe 5% of the total population that are really interested in long-form stuff, would probably lends itself more to subscription models. And I think largely that's kind of worked quite well. What people get when they sign up to the 2.1, I'd like to think uh, is a genuine belief that, you know, there's no, there's, there's, no, there's no wall-to-wall advertising on the website. There's no advertising at all on the website, actually. It's very clean... And a huge part of when we set it up was we thought let's let's try and make something that people would actually want to click on. One of the most um, you know encouraging bits of feedback I've had from people when we once we set up was that they said they just quite like sitting on the website or they quite like scrolling through the website. 
because it doesn't hit them with, you know, they don't need to have their ad blocker turned on. They don't have to fill in two or three questionnaires just to read an article. There isn't some damn video playing somewhere that they can't find. It's very clean. It's 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 very simple. It's very minimalist actually. Is and we like and and on top of that, with in aesthetically, it kind of works because we work with quite a lot of the, um, illustrators as well to kind of put together quite a lot of huge big designs. And I think it lends itself quite a lot to almost some. I think when people ask me, you know, to just kind of sum up the website, I think I'd maybe the best way to do it is it's it's basically a quarterly magazine, but instead of getting it all in one go every quarter, you're kind of getting two or three articles a day and and it's still very much uh, I'd like to think it's kind of designed that way when you look at the website um, or at least click into the articles um, we like to have big photos as much as we can we use a lot of we use a lot of graphs but they're all they're all um, they're all very clean and they're responsive as well so you can click on different bits and they change and things and it's 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 something that we think people can look at and think you know I, I don't mind paying for this I'm quite happy to pay for this and 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 the coverage as well, and an editorial line we take as well, which is very different from the vast majority of the Scottish media, is that we don't kind of just chase things for the sake of hits. Um, you know, if you were to go onto the Evening Times website, for example, and look at the most read things, even just in general, including news, nine of the top ten are Celtic or Rangers transfer stories, and you know that might be that might make sense for them from a business point of view, but we thought there's no point of us doing this website if once people click on the website, it's just wall to wall Celtic and Ranger stuff. Um, so we have, we feel we have an obligation to cover all twelve of the teams as well as we can. We try to limit um, our coverage of Celtic and Rangers to maybe one or two articles per per week. Like most of the clubs, actually, we try to get at least one article up um, of each club every week, and that's largely because you know we realise that people are a bit fed up. Even Celtic and Rangers fans, to an extent, are quite fed up with the idea of just constant nonsense about their clubs. Um, and we feel like less and less is more in that regard. And I think maybe the, I, I always hate making this comparison because it, sound, it makes us sound very pretentious and makes me sound as though I've got a really weird grasp of our own place in the media landscape. But I'd maybe liken it to picking up a copy of The Economist in the New Yorker. And what I mean by that is by no means uh, the quality of the writing. But what I mean by that is that you don't tend to pick up these magazines because if you want to read something very specific, you pick it up and you kind of hope that um, you'll find something you didn't even think about. And that's largely the kind of positive feedback we've had so far. Maybe you have a Kilmarnock fan who say, I really like your Kilmarnock articles, but I actually didn't even know this about that Hibs player, or I had no idea about this, and I really enjoyed this piece of Partick Thistle, for example. Every day it's a different thing um, about a different club, and we, we, we're we not really trying to court your fanatical football fans in Scotland. We're trying to kind of grab, or really grab a hold of people who love Scottish football as a whole and they're quite happy to read about different clubs and different periods and time and things that had nothing to do with their own support. Quite like the likes of Nutmeg and you know the Blizzard, for example, that, that don't ever try to coattail to a certain fan group just for the sake of... Uh, uh, go on. I, what's what I'm looking for? Traffic. Yeah, there we go, for online traffic, yeah. Could you just quickly tell us about how the subscription model actually works? If, if I were to go over to the 2.1 and sign up for a, a subscription today, what would what would the options that I would be faced with? What would they what would they look like? So we have three tiers on the website, and they, they, they're largely based around the you know pretty standard concept. 
you can take out a monthly subscription which comes to about £5 per month. You can take out a quarterly subscription that comes to about £13. And if you want, you can take out an annual subscription which is £50. Much like a lot of subscription services, if you tend to take a longer period of time, the, the, the overall value or the overall cost drops. So, for example, a monthly subscription is £5, but if you take out an annual one, that goes down to about £4 a month, for example. And we do try to offer an incentive for people to just genuinely have a read of it so we offer a free trial as well so you, if you sign up for a free trial you can get three three free days to have a look around before that expires and then we like to think that people uh, once they've had a look around on that they think actually I quite like this and then they take out a, uh, a paid subscription so it's it's not a, it's it's not a complete and utter closed off paywall I guess the best way to describe it is uh you know, a tapered paywall, or I'm trying to think what the, the, the right term is, but it's something akin to the likes of the New York Times or something where um, you can have a look around, read two or three articles first, and then you can make up your mind. Am I right in thinking that it used to be the case that you could you could just go on and get a couple of free pieces without having to sign up? Has that changed? We've always asked people to sign up. What it is, but the thing, the, the free trial doesn't take any payment details off you or anything like that. It's re- it really is just a, an email address. And we ask if you'd like to take uh, sign up to the newsletter. But uh, we're, we're aware that some subscription services out there are a little cheeky in the sense that they offer a free trial. And then if you don't turn it off, then you end up signing up to it. Um, we decided against that because obviously, it, it, <laughs> like at the end of the day, we're not trying to trick people into signing up to the website. You either, you either want it or you don't. And yeah, I think, we, I think that's... Um, I think by and large people are quite happy with that. We're, we're not trying to, like I said, we're not trying to trick people or go them into accidentally giving us their money. We're only interested if you have a genuine interest in supporting us. Well, I think one of the problems that the football media, I mean, I can only speak for the football media, but I'm sure it happens in all branches of the media, but one of the biggest problems they faced is that they, they don't realise that they have to treat their audiences as responsible adults sometimes. And if you if you constantly take the piss with the way that you treat them then they will lose any interest in following your your outlet so i think yeah it's good there's so many things like you say in 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 the media these days that just you just feel as though you're just constantly being tricked into things that i think it's just refreshing to have an experience where you don't feel as though that's that's taking place in terms of subscription models in general i mean we've been talking about newspapers a lot and i think what i find so funny is that the 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 notion of a subscription model i think is it has a fairly negative press with a lot of people a lot of people that i talk to say well why would i pay for something when i can get it for free and yet we've we've been working with subscription models when it comes to newspapers for example for years where the the assumption was if you liked a newspaper you would spend that money every day and and that's essentially just a subscription model do you think that there's a work, that's a workable method the subscription model for football media platforms in in online on the, in the present day yeah i do actually um it's it's a really fascinating topic actually and it kind of relates just to kind of human nature in general i think i think what we were basically taught was or what we believed was that we went from a model in which people paid for a newspaper and they were quite happy to do so because, you know, they got what they wanted from it. The internet popped along and suddenly newspapers were incentivized to basically just stick everything online for free. And the kind of carrot dangling in front was, you know, if you pick up enough people, you bring enough people to your website, then advertising, much like the advertising, once upon a time your newspaper will pay for things. You know, I think we saw that quite notably Yes, we see it a lot in the tabloids and I think everyone has a perfect example in their head of a kind of clickbait website which they tend to avoid whenever they're on Twitter or Facebook. But, you know, it went right to the very top um, in terms of, for example, The Guardian, which, you know, I consider a bastion of 
outstanding journalism and outstanding writing, even they thought, you know, our saviour is as much traffic as possible. And they've obviously moved away from that. And it's kind of fitted in with a trend of quality newspapers and quality media companies deciding to move away from the idea of um, just chasing revenue, uh, chasing, you know, huge audiences. And I think, unfortunately, it's, 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 it's going to take some time for readers and consumers of, you know, football coverage to come to terms with that. I do think the, the internet as we know it is changing. I think slowly but surely walls are going up. And although that sounds in principle quite bad, I think it's, nece- it's a necessity. I think people are going to have to come to terms with the fact that if they want quality, if they want quality products, they have to pay for them. And luckily, if I look at larger media trends, for example, in specifically in America, which I think in terms of you know media characteristics and kind of trends is probably about five or six years ahead of the UK actually, and then probably about probably about ten years ahead of Scotland specifically. It seems as though people are coming around to the idea of saying, "Look, if I want if I want quality journalism, if I want quality, if I want this person to cover this niche, for example, football or business or something properly, I have to be able to I have to be willing to part with, you know, the amount of money it costs to get a coffee every day, and and I think it is a genuine behavioural thing, and I think it's a cultural thing that will have to change, and I think it is changing. I do sometimes sit up at night wondering if we at the two point one push the button maybe two, three, four years ahead of time. But I have no doubt that if there is going to be a future for professional football journalism in Scotland, it's going to be based around a subscription one way or another. And and, 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 I, and I, think that's, I think that's a much safer platform for media companies. You know, I think luckily for us, a subscription model fits hand in hand with the kind of stuff we want to do. You know, maybe... I'm trying to think of a comparison, but maybe 2,000 subscribers on our website earns us more money than, you know, 2 or 20 million, view, 20 million views on our website a month or something like that. And I don't, I hope that doesn't sound as though I'm just, you know, sitting counting pennies here, um, like Scrooge McDuck or something like that. I just mean that, you know, there's a much stronger, the, the, the customer or um, consumer has a much stronger say and how things are done at a media company when they're willing to part with maybe three or four pounds a month rather than with their data. And I think as well, you know, it kind of fits in with the kind of general scope of things right now in terms of people who are maybe a little more anxious about their own personal details and their own their own data online. I don't think anyone, myself included, ever agreed to the kind of level of, you know, data harvesting that happens whenever we go online. I know not even just from a kind of Facebook point of view of handing over your birth, your date birth or your your location or what you like on a Facebook group to a political party. I'm talking about, you know, when you maybe are looking for a toy truck for your nephew and you end up on a website two weeks later and there are advertisements for that toy truck. That That, that scares me. And I think people, I'd like to think that the kind of general population will maybe come to a point when they think, well, you know, instead of, instead of basically giving away all my, 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 my own personal information, I'd much rather just, you know, help support local, um, or quality journalism. And yeah, and, I, and I'm, I'm very hopeful. I'm very hopeful that it will, it will push media companies to do, um, to, to prioritize quality over quantity. And I think we're already beginning to see that in the US and in parts of the UK too. 
Yeah, I think it's really interesting what you're saying about the behavioral science side of things, because again, so much of these things happen through the slow creep of they happen and you don't think about the fact that they're happening. And then maybe 10 years down the line, you look back and think, oh, how did that happen? But obviously at every point of the of the, the journey that we were involved in that happening. But what I find so interesting about that is that when you, when you are engaging in the media, like we've been saying, as simply a, a visitor in, in this big morass of online traffic in scare quotes your relationship to that media changes to when you're doing something like you're doing with the 2.1 where you're paying for that content and you're feeling i think and i i subscribe to the to the athletic for example uh, mainly because actually i follow their baseball coverage a little bit left field but i feel a lot more invested in that website I think than I do in another website that I just simply visit because it's free. I feel more invested in the athletic than I do, for example, in the Guardian football website. And I think, again, this is, that's something what you're talking about there in terms of saying things have got to change is I think where, and I think where subscription models come into this is that you're not simply producing great quality content for for a reader you're actually generating an audience that are way more engaged in what you're doing than than any ad revenue model is ever going to do would you would you agree with that oh absolutely i think from a marketing point of view the kind of golden you know egg or the golden goose or whatever the expression is that you want to have as much engagement with your audience as possible and you know i think that kind of strikes true with the kind of generic clickbait stuff where you'll have you know, you, 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 even even now, quite modern, well thought out media companies still chase a certain a certain audience, and then once they get to a certain level, they then turn to media. They, they then turn to brands and say, you know, look, we have X amount of men between twenty four and thirty two. Um, why don't you do a video with us, and you can sell your new SUV, and then blah blah blah. And a lot of them do that quite well. I think Bleach Report are a really good example of that, where. They've taken scale and they have been very good at, you know, very, uh, at bringing across very specific marketing campaigns and that works for them quite well. But I think elsewhere, if you want to go down the kind of subscription route, what that then allows you to do is you can get very personal with your readership. I mean, the 2.1 by no means is a huge example of this because in the grand scheme of things, we don't have a huge readership. But what I do like is that, you know, we had three sold out live events at the end of last year and at each event I was kind of mingling with people and you know they were talking to me about what they like about the website what they may want what they'd like to see more of and I think that's the kind of interaction you'd like with the readership I think we are seeing that to an extent with um you know for example the Guardian Football Weekly do these live shows the Blizzard to do something similar you know and this is, gives them an opportunity to meet the people that, that pay their wages and I think from a subscription point of view, that allows that allows the consumer to say, I keep using the word consumer perhaps a little coldly, allows the reader to say, look, you know, I'm giving you my money, um, here's what I want sort of thing, or here's why I appreciate, here's why I don't appreciate. And that's a very, that's a much more direct route to, you know, um, the people that run the company rather than, you know, some uh, social media in turn saying, oh, well, our traffic's down 8% across the board. What are we going to do? You know, I think um, if the Guardian have, if the Guardian do turn to a subscription model and they suddenly realise a huge amount of our subscribers are subscribers because they love reading Barney Roney's column every week, I think that's far more useful to a media company than, you know, maybe saying, oh, well, you know, 
our sports our, our sports homepage um, traffic is down a little bit. Um, how do we how do we fix that? And I think you know, and and, and I think ultimately it's it's more accountability to the extent as well. And I think that's something that a lot of readers want as well. When you have websites like the Sun or the Mirror, or which we have in UK or in Scotland, equivalent as a Daily Record, they they don't know what the readers want. I mean, they can try and gauge it based off of um, what you know, what what where, where the traffic is funneled through. But by and large, it's based on articles that kind of trick people into reading things. Um, for example, yesterday the Scottish Sun ran an article about a Celtic player maybe signing for Hibs. It was it was based around a photo on Twitter uh, of a fan confusing someone with the Celtic player, and they said in their own article, and they said in their own article it wasn't him. So, you know, <laughs> now if that if that if that article gets half a million reads, what does that tell the Daily Record sports department? It doesn't tell them to do more genuine coverage of Celtic or Hibs. It just tells them, oh, well, if if we use if we trick enough people, if we use a, a smart enough headline to trick people in, we can keep doing this. But it's a never-ending cycle. It never really, it doesn't offer any anything of genuine quality. The reader isn't happy. You know, the journalist who has to write the crap article probably isn't happy either. And at the end of the day, um, the money that the, that the newspaper makes from you know, the 0.01% of people that click on the website who end up accidentally clicking on an advertisement, the value of that is going down and down every day as well. So, you know, all three parties there aren't happy with what's happening. Alternatively, you know, if we started doing a new feature on the on the 2.1 and we notice people are signing up to the website because of that, we can say, oh, this is quite good. Or we can have subscribers literally say to us, oh, I quite like that. Or at the next live event, they can say, well, you know, I wish you'd gone back to the... You, you guys used to do this. I really enjoyed this. Could you consider doing that again? It's a far more direct relationship with readers. And I think um, if you kind of take the marketing thing out of it for a moment, it, it, it brings this, it brings the writer and the, and the reader far closer together. And it helps us kind of shape our editorial line and um, and the, the manner in which we kind of run the business as a whole, to be honest with you. I wonder if we could just shift momentarily to talk about the American sports media context. I know we've talked about it quite a bit already, and you clearly have an understanding of the USC and having having even obviously worked for them. I'm a, I'm asking this because I, I wonder sometimes whether or not the subscription model seems to be something that is more germane to US context, perhaps. And we've you've mentioned already that that the US seems to be five years ahead in in terms of this. You don't think there's any sort of underlying. Uh, societal aspect that makes the US more germane to paying for uh, sports content? Um, no, I think there probably is, to be honest with you, actually. I think there's certainly some things you can't ignore. There's There are huge cultural, oh, I think the right expression, huge cultural parts of US society that based around sport that make modern you know readers just naturally inclined to paying for something. I think the manner in which Sports Illustrated, for example, over the last 30, 40 years has managed to, I mean, at its peak was one of the most important publications in the US in terms of the way it covered things. And just simple geography suggests that, you know, the New York Times has a potential readership the size of not far off Europe, for example, you know, while its, it's comparisons in The Guardian have to branch out to Australia and New Zealand and even the US as well, because there's only so many people in the UK who speak English, and I, and I, and I do think that that means that you know they 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 can they can turn to people and say, 
you know, you should be paying for this. And I think a large part of that as well is the fact that they don't have the BBC. They don't have um, a national broadcaster. I mean, I know they technically do. There's things like NPR and stuff, which a lot of people are very, I think, intriguingly actually as well as on top of the kind of subscription idea that's growing. I think you're also finding a much, much grower, a much healthier appreciation for things like NPR because people begin to appreciate, look, I'm not so keen on this whole soulless corporate idea of, people just harvesting clicks or you know maybe content even on radio or podcasts which isn't as genuine as something like NPR um, and then in point I'm basically trying to make here is that while I think sports fans in the US are quite similar to sports fans in the UK in the sense that they want some genuine quality content and a lot of them are quite happy to pay for it when we set a 2.1 up we thought look we're not going to be doing what the BBC do there's no point in doing what the BBC do and if I was working at, uh, if I was running a sports um, desk at a national newspaper, I'd be saying something quite similar too. Um, there's no point covering what the, the the BBC or the press wires already do, and I think that's something that maybe, if newspapers in the UK are you know are, are deciding to pivot towards subscriptions, they maybe have to consider that, I think, because the BBC's probably is, is, a, is a huge elephant in the room in the UK media landscape that the US doesn't simply have to deal with. In the United States, the New York Times is the paper of record, or the Washington Post is a, is a paper of record. In the UK, people go on their BBC News app, and that's where they start from. And then after that, maybe they go to the Guardian or the Times or, you know, wherever else they want to go to because of their particular political leaning to read comment, analysis, features. And I think that's maybe where the the commercial media companies, that's where they should maybe be basing their strong suit. And I think that differs slightly from the American market. And I think that relates to football as well, actually, in the sense that in America, well, I guess soccer, as they call it, is a little different because it's not huge out there. But if you want to compare maybe the Premier League to um, the NFL, for example, or NBA, you know, these American leagues are curated and kept going by private organizations in America. For example, ESPN. ESPN exists purely because of the manner in which it covers these national leagues. And the UK equivalent to that, although we have Sky Sports and BT Sports, which pay for the rights to these programs, most people's entry point to the Premier League is actually Match of the Day. And, you know, Match of the Day isn't really something that you could provide to a commercial or a commercial company in the UK could provide unless the BBC isn't there, and I think that's a huge difference, and that's why I think. Um, and as such, I think if you're a media company in the UK and specifically Scotland, you basically have to sit there and and decide right what does the BBC do? What do they do well? And if they do it well enough, we can't compete with that because. You know, and I guess you can maybe argue that the BBC is a technically a subscription model sense that everyone puts a bit of money into and it works and people are happy to pay for it. Um, but I think that's the main difference between the UK and the US media in the sense that you know they they where where we have the BBC that provides the very basic coverage, the US is able to basically allow private companies like New York Times or ESPN to do that. 
Yeah, and I think we talked in the in the last episode. Actually, I talked with Josh Schneiderweiler, who who is an American podcaster who lives in the UK. Uh, but we were talking about one of the big differences between the US and the UK being the fact that the US is such a huge geographical area that it necessarily has to break down into smaller sections, which is not the case in in the UK. And I think going back to what you said before about the way that you started the two point one as as a as a following that model of the athletic where they they do that very much broken down ge- geography and it didn't quite work the same way for you i wonder whether or not that would be an influence as well on uh, this idea that that the american and the the british sports media context are different yeah i mean i think perhaps where we differ slightly from the athletic is that they have grand ambitions to become a huge media company i think i think you know, the athletic was actually born out of Silicon Valley. You know, and as such, it has Silicon Valley ambitions. I think they might not admit it themselves, but I think the athletic are, are they're gunning for ESPN. You know, they want to be a huge media player. <laughs> you know, at the two point one, we we're, we're, we're ambitious, but we're not here to knock down the Scotsman or the Herald or the Daily Record. We we like to consider ourselves if we can get to a point like a quarterly magazine and although we're quite happy with you know the money we make the profits we make we're we're not we're not looking to hugely dictate the manner in which the media landscape in Scotland works we're not going to be competing for broadcasting rights anytime soon for example <laughs> and so yeah i think that that's probably that that's and and that's kind of that's that's the kind of route we decided to take we decided look we're not going for 100% of Scottish football fans. We're going for the 5, 10, 15% who would like to read. Um, you know, I think my, my, my perhaps perfect idea of a 2.1 reader is maybe, you know, a guy um, or a woman, young professional, late 20s, early 30s, who every lunchtime is looking for something to read for 30 or 40 minutes. And they then log on to our website. They see we've got two new things on the website every day and you know hopefully we then we're allowed to offer them something to read every day perhaps similar to maybe a newspaper or a magazine uh, a monthly magazine which you might flick through through the month and we're, we're quite happy to do that if it allows us to kind of continue doing what we're doing um, and continue growing at a modest pace so yeah i think that's probably where we diverge and that probably is largely down to the maybe ja- the, ge- the geography of scotland i think there's a there's still a huge huge area for us to grow into I mean, I don't think we've even scratched the surface of um, what we can, of even maybe getting ourselves in front of most Scottish football fans, to be honest with you. But our grand ambition is to maybe have a very slender chunk of the Scottish media market and because that's just the, that's just the nature of our business. And I, I, I don't, I, I think down the line, that doesn't mean, you know, a subscription model can't dominate. I, I have huge ambition. I, I'd like to think that, Newspapers like the Scotsman or the Herald, you know, which offer you know, or try to offer genuine quality content, I think you know if that's done properly, they can dominate, and with a good subscription model, they can, you know, perhaps you know out 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 muscle tabloid newspapers, which you know get traffic in the magnitude of ten times more than them every month. But from our point of view, um, we're very different from the from the athletic in that regard. So I'm, I'm not sure if if it then if that translates to the UK the same way the athletic are hoping to dominate the US media. But it's it's a fascinating discussion all the same. It's a left field question, but how thankful are you that Stephen Gerrard is in the in the Scottish Premiership at the moment? Uh, very actually, it's, it's it's absolutely fascinating. He's 
you know, I've, 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 I actually recently wrote an article saying that Steven Gerrard had proved me wrong because I did think it was, I thought it was a PR exercise, to be honest with you. But he's done remarkably well at Rangers off, and, you know, just as a, as a coach alone. But the, the, the interest is, has brought, I think the interest, I like to think, has brought a couple of people towards Scottish football that they wouldn't have considered. And I think what people might find if they, if they took a look at Scottish football is that, it might not offer the same quality um, as the Premier League. Obviously, it doesn't, but it, I think it offers something a little more wholesome. Especially, I think if you have, if any of your listeners are fans of maybe lower leagues in English football, I think they'll probably know what I mean by this in the sense that um, you know, there's you feel closer to the action. If and it, I, I find it genuinely more entertaining than most Premier League games um, because it's faster, it's more engaging, and the drama around it is, you know, unmatched anywhere, I think. You know, I think um, in Scotland we like to refer to it as the banter years. Um, that was initially born out of what happened with Rangers, but it's just continued on to all sorts of things. And, you know, there's there's a wonderful Twitter account called Old, Old Firm Facts, and he's a, he's a good friend. Well, not a good friend, but I know him quite well. And he's, he's, he's essentially a comedian, and he's built a, comedi- a, com- a com- comedy career out of basically being able to not even make things up but just simply point at the the sheer lunacy of what happens in Scottish football every week and I think that's I think that's its strength actually we I think Scots have a remarkable ability to make fun of ourselves and it's it's there's never a dull moment if I'm being quite honest with you and from the point of view of a journalist who writes about it four or five times a week there's there's nothing there's never any there's never a lack of content or or or, or stories to pick up on so would you say that the a Rangers Celtic rivalry would be good for business. Yeah, I think that's always the case. I think um, I, I tend to push back against the idea that Celtic dominating the league is bad, I, I, especially when you look at the kind of finances and stuff, and you maybe coefficients of the Scottish Premiership. It's not Scotland's diminishing stand uh, footing in European football isn't because Celtic have. You know, been in the Champions League every year or every other year. It's because some of the other clubs haven't been able to step up in Rangers' stead. You know, and I think if and as we're seeing right now, Rangers are now on the verge of qualifying for the Europa League group stages. I know that doesn't sound entirely fascinating from maybe an English point of view, but it's a big deal considering that since Rangers have been gone, Aberdeen have struggled to do exactly that, and obviously domestically it means that um, we have an actual title race, which is always good fun. You know. I think a lot of people thought Rangers would maybe take a little more time to get their footing, but Steven Gerrard simply hasn't put a foot wrong since he arrived at Ibrox, and it's happened to coincide with a lot of nonsense going on at Celtic Park right now with Brendan Rodgers and Dedrick Boyata, for example, the centre-back who has kicked up all sorts of a fuss, um, and it's managed to coincide with Celtic struggling to or failing to qualify for the Champions League, so they actually play each other next weekend in the first Old Firm derby of the season, and you know, sure, Celtic fans would say they don't care, but there's no doubt they're looking over their shoulder, and there's no doubt the Rangers fans, um, who are probably you know again still one of the most passionate fan groups in the whole UK, you know they're singing and jumping around as well. So it's it's brilliant to have just anything like that in Scottish football, and I think um, although I'm, I don't like the idea of saying that there's there's a kind of pushback from a lot of fans to say that Scottish football needs a strong Rangers. I think it just needs strong teams in general and we've seen that from you know it's not just the old firm that do that 
I would I would honestly ask I'd, I'd urge any listener to to take in a Hibs game, for example, or the Motherwell game, or you know even watch, for example, Aberdeen and Hibs play this weekend. You know these clubs are all fascinating in their own right. They all play their own style of football. There's a huge array of tactics on show in Scottish football. It's not just punt and lump. There's some outstanding technical ability and some outstanding young players as well, which is very encouraging to see. So, yeah, you know, it's great to have Rangers back. It's great to have Steven Gerrard seem to straight them out. Um, and I hope we do have a title race. But I, I think the kind of health of Scottish football is actually very encouraging right now because we've got a lot of clubs outside of the two in Glasgow who um, are thoroughly entertaining. And I, I, I really would suggest that any fan of football gives it a look this season. No, I totally agree, and I've been following it quite closely so far, uh, and enjoying it. But like you say, you know, you know, as someone as someone who occasionally wanders down to Dulwich Hamlet because they're my local club, I actually I'm going this afternoon because I have a soft spot for Gloucester City, who they're playing. For me, what the the real pull for that kind of football is is that there's there's much less narrative that that sort of washes over you when you're watching the game you know you a team turns up and you don't really know much about them and you kind of just watch the game on the game's merits alone rather than thinking oh is Harry Kane going to score because it's August as if that matters in the grand scheme of things and I think I, I've enjoyed that about obviously there's, there's there is narrative about Scottish football but for me there's a, there's much more of a chance to just sit down and be like oh I, I don't know what's going to happen as much it could go either way that's a little bit more open anything could happen Let's move on. Sorry, I've, I've dragged you on a little bit, but just a couple more questions before we close. Firstly, the the question of aesthetics. How important do you think aesthetic is for the modern sports media company? We've already you've already talked about how careful the two point one is in developing its own aesthetic, and and it's obviously very well designed from from what I've seen of it. How important a consideration was that when you were when thinking up the website, and is branding something that you think about a lot? Yeah, I think it's hugely important. Um... I can tell you for a fact that when we were setting up the website, we spent at least a day arguing over which <laughs> which uh, typeface to use for the articles, for example, which font style, which sounds ludicrous. Um, but I, th- I think it, it's relevant. I think it's it's really, really important that you, you put together a website that people genuinely quite enjoy being on, you know, and it kind of fits in again with, I, I hate to just keep taking digs at them, but, you know, for example, I think English, your English listeners will know what I'm talking about in the sense that, you know, Trinity Mirror, which owned the Daily Mirror, they have a number of sister papers across the country. Uh, in Glasgow, we have the Daily Record, but I think, I'm trying to think of maybe some compact. I couldn't actually name many in England aside from maybe Football London in the sense that they all have a kind of similar template to their, to their, to their websites and their articles and, Every single one of them has a stupid video on top, and then once you scroll down, the video stays in the bottom right corner, and then there's quite it's that that undoubtedly puts me off. And although I can appreciate from a business point of view that it's far cheaper to just kind of have a simple template, a simple CMS, which every every website runs off of, it means that it, it, it comes across as a very cold, you know, one size fits all concept. And you know, I think. At the same time, I do wonder whether this is just a kind of thing where you get media types who just kind of fixate these things and your average punter couldn't care less and I can respect that. But um, I think what I I absolutely adore um, are websites that are clearly um, designed to draw people in. I think The Guardian have done that very well recently of Times. I absolutely adore The Times' website. I love how it's similar to the newspaper, which I think has got an outstanding design very clear, very minimalistic. And what kind of troubles me deeply as well is that while I still think, um, you know, broadsheets like the Herald in Glasgow 
Um, if you pick up a copy of that newspaper, it's still superbly laid out. When you go on the website, it's an absolute mess. And it just strikes me, it says to me very clearly, this is a business which hasn't really prioritised online because you have to have a website that people are happy to sit on if you expect them to read something that's worth reading. And that, that obviously, I think maybe what we're at fault at for a large part of the 2.1 is we, we fixated on how our website looks on a desktop. And we've had growing pains over the last year as to how that works on mobile. We're still, we still have issues with that in the sense that some of our, some of our, you know, images don't load as quickly as we'd like them to. But at the end of the day, everything we try and do is designed so that people can spend as much time as they can on it. And that's not because we have advertising that demands a certain length of time or eyeballs. We don't have any advertising at all. So there's nothing really cynical about that. It's just we're trying to put together a lovely aesthetic concept that people can appreciate. And, you know, reading on a website should be as, as, as enjoyable or as, as, as you know, as, as, as relaxing as reading a book in your bed. And when you click on somebody's newspaper, mag- newspaper um, websites, it's the complete opposite. It's like playing a horrible, horrible video game in which you have to click four or five things before it all just sits still and it drives me nuts. And I think I think that's something that generally puts people off entirely, yeah. And then one final question about the the ins and outs of uh, of of the the practicalities of the of the website. What about the multimedia element? Um you've you've already mentioned that for example a lot of the Scottish uh, mainstream outlets haven't really got on board with things like podcasts, things like using videos, etc cetera, etc. Cetera. So how do you go about making decisions about how you'd fit in the market from that perspective? Like what sort of um multimedia elements are you um committed to introducing as much as possible yeah i mean this is a really interesting thing because there's, there's, there's two aspects that we're constantly juggling with on the one side we have the, the kind of global trends for example the pivot to video which i think is largely kind of fell on its arse to be honest if you don't mind my french and then on top of that so we have to kind of keep on top of these trends you know everything has to be a, everything has to be a video and it has to be on facebook or you know something similar or everything has to be a live video on Facebook or Periscope or whatever. You know, every three months there seems to be this new trend that's going to save the media landscape. And, you know, a huge part of running a media company is deciding whether these things are worth doing or not worth doing. And, of course, you know, every media company has its own kind of strategy for how it engages people on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. And one of the one of the huge learning curves for us since we set up is you know how to engage football fans on twitter for example so you know w- what we just, what we kind of realized was that um we're not really trying to entice people into clicking onto the article because once they click onto the article it then asks you to either sign in or sign up before you can even read the article so you know there's no point in us trying to trick people onto the website the same way for example, the Scottish Sun will have an article about maybe, you know, Stuart Armstrong being linked to Southampton this summer. They would intentionally put a tweet out saying, a Celtic player has been linked to a Premier League giant. And then through that, you know, they then, unfortunately, football fans are obliged to click on that because like, all right, bloody hell, what is it now? And then they click on it and they read it and they're like, fine, well done, you've, you've got me in there. The way we look at it is a complete opposite side of view. The way we look at it is, for example, Gary Mackay, Stephen, uh, the Aberdeen wingers having a superb season, and we simply tweet that out. We say, you know, Gary Mackay, Stephen's having an outstanding season. Here's here's why, you know, and then people know 
what the topic is about. They're not being they're not being hoodwinked into clicking on the article or, or tricked into it. They they already know what we're doing, and then they click on it to read more. And that's the kind of approach we take on social media largely. And Instagram's been very interesting because rather than just put out an article or put out a picture, we'll often stick two or three paragraphs of the article itself onto the in, inside the, the Instagram post so people can, you know, read a fair chunk of the article and then underneath it would say something like click on the link below. So we're not we're not trying to trick people onto a website in the kind of standard way that not just tabloid magazines, but, you know, our t- tabloid newspapers. It's what I used to do at STV as well or at Deutsche Welle in Germany where it's all about getting people onto the website. For us, we treat social media as, you know, just something that our subscribers can use to keep on top of what we're posting. So I like to think, you know, if an article goes up on a Monday and we tweet it out, we'll have a subscriber who'll be like, oh, right, great, that's what's on the website today, and then they'll go on to the website. It's not about trying to trick new people into coming on. But in terms of kind of general media trends, specifically in Scotland, we found that, you know, video works very well on Facebook, um, YouTube, and Twitter. One of the things we like to try and do are many documentaries, which are, docu- you know, videos maybe between 10 and 12 minutes long in which we cover a topic around Scottish football. And, for example, we did a 12-minute documentary when we launched on Aberdeen moving away from Pataudry to a new stadium. It's And I think what's really fascinating about that is that that's a story which has probably been covered a 100 times in news reports on newspapers, but no one's actually put it to video. And we found a huge amount of engagement from Aberdeen fans simply because we put that video on YouTube because... Nobody has done that yet. It's, it can be something as simple as taking the, the, the audio from our podcasts every week, turning that into a video and putting it on Twitter, and people genuinely are engaged by that because it's it's not it's not we're not trying to trick people into watching our videos. It's just something that people we won't we, we're trying to make things that people would quite happily sit and spend five or ten minutes watching. And because most of the, the Scottish media don't do that. We found that the engagement on that's quite high because we, we're offering something that no one else really does. And it's not something that's behind our paywall. Um, that's another important thing as well. You know, Although we have a paywall so that there is some incentive to sign up, um, we do a lot of the video stuff that we do on social media and on YouTube. We, we put in front of our paywall because, you know, a, we want to be able to offer that to people because it's not something that any real football fan, in our opinion, can get anywhere else in Scotland. Um, but it's also something that we think our subscribers would think, I'm quite proud that I helped you know, fund that or I helped them make that because I support the website. Final question for me then. How do you see the future of the football media and how do you see the 2.1 fitting within that future? I think we're going to hit critical... I think maybe we already have hit saturation point with clickbait articles, with transfer stories, with people trying to hoard uh, traffic and I hope that means we have we see that kind of bubble burst and we see media companies move back towards genuine analysis, genuine features, genuine long form uh, in the hunt for people's genuine interest and intention rather than just simple clicks and I'm hopeful for that so that's how I see it and I'd like to think the 2.1 can play a part in that in the future. Stefan, that's been a really fascinating conversation. I could have carried on for much longer, but I'll, I'll let you get off. Thank you so much for coming on. Where should people go if they want to find out more about the 2.1? And where should people go if they want to follow your work? So the 2.1 is all out. Uh, so it's the2.1.com, all, all, all worded, no, no numbers, uh, .com. And you can find us on social media, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, all of it. 
simply by typing in the 2.1, all words, no spaces, and you should be able to find that quite easily. And I'm on Twitter at S. Beankowski. Thanks very much for coming on today. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Football Media Podcast with me, John McKenzie. If you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe, rate and review on iTunes or follow us on Twitter at Footy Media Pod. You can tune in next week to hear Ahmed Yusuf talk to us about black bodies in football and the football media. But until then, have a great week. Goodbye. Thank you.